Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Today, I'm going to be speaking uh, today and next week on the subject of gratitude, thankfulness. And it is likely that some of what you hear this morning and next Sunday morning will make its way into my message for the community Thanksgiving service that night, but you still have to come, okay? Thankfulness, gratefulness, gratitude. Seems like such a nice, safe subject. Uh, Nothing to get offended over. Hard to find a theological divide on the issue. It's not like speaking in tongues, not like eternal security, not like the rapture. All these uh, things that we can uh, we hopefully don't break fellowship over, but we can certainly disagree about. Thankfulness, everybody agrees. Yeah, thankfulness, sure, we should be thankful. Um, it just, uh, just it, it's, it's, we know it's biblical, we know it's right, we know it's good, but hard to get worked up over, right? But we must pay attention to Scripture because there are well over 100 references to thankfulness. And many of them are commands and reminders to be thankful and to give thanks. And there is a reason for that. Why? If it's such a... Sometimes we think it's not a big deal because, come on, it's natural. You know, when we... Something good happens, we're naturally thankful. And yet, we are commanded to be thankful. We are commanded to give thanks. Um, I refer from time to time to Romans chapter 1 because it is... uh, It gives a really clear description of the downward path of mankind because of sin. And, man's, uh, and, and it's particularly concerning man's relationship with God because of this. I'm going to begin reading here in Romans chapter 1 in verse 22. Romans 1.22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God to an image made like, incorrupt, like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to, their, to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which were not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Is that or is that not a clear description of our society today? Literal celebrations of evil. Every time I read that, I marvel at how on the nose it is, but look at how it starts. Go back, Romans chapter 1 still, but go back to verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, among all that evil that he described, and it was a pretty, uh, I'm not saying it was an exhaustive list, but it was pretty nearly, wasn't it? All the different manifestations of evil. What happened? That even though they knew, they did not glorify him, nor were they thankful. Here's another famous passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, uh, this is verse 3. Second Timothy 3, 3, uh, no, 3, 1. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Right there in the middle of all that evil, there is unthankfulness. Now, let's explore this a little bit. Uh, you, you don't need to turn here. I'm not going to read a passage from this, but I'm going to talk about it. And you can, you're certainly, most of you are familiar with it, and you are more than welcome. You are encouraged to go back and read it yourself. But I'm going back to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and you know how this worked. God planted a garden, and he put man in it. He put Adam in it to tend the garden. And he also caused to grow there every tree that was pleasant to look at and good for food. And then it gives a brief description of the area that where this garden is. There were rivers flowing through it, brand new rivers. Uh, every, a garden that God planted, there was gold, there was onyx. And, and God tells him again, tend the garden and you can eat freely from all of these trees except for one. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you eat that one, you're going to die. And uh, he, makes, he then creates Eve out of Adam, and they are together in the garden, enjoying the earth that God created for them. And in chapter 3, the serpent, who we know is the devil, uh, convinces Eve to eat the fruit of the one tree they weren't to eat of. And in doing so, along with Adam, who was there with her, they plunge all mankind into sin and death. Now, I want to point out a couple of things that might start out sounding silly, but I'm going somewhere that I believe is important with this. And I'll start, I'll start this way. I actually like fruits and vegetables. I do. Many different kinds. There are very few foods I don't like, believe it or not. I like fruits and vegetables, but I'll be honest, I rarely crave fruits and vegetables. It'll happen. You know, a man, a ripe, juicy pear on a hot summer afternoon is one of the greatest things that may have been the temptation fruit. I believe it may have been a pear. Uh, I like, if I'm going to have a bowl of cereal, I crave, sort of, I, I like to have blueberries on it. Uh, there are things every now and then, you know, it's summertime, you know, corn on the cob, that's something I might crave. But I don't crave even those things the same way that I'll crave, uh, for example, a pizza or a steak, 
or spaghetti. You know what I'm talking about? Burgers, hot dogs, that kind of thing. Ribs, tacos, chicken curry, lasagna. You know where I'm going. Pot roast, saloon beef, gyros, cheese curds, cheese dip, mac and cheese. Do you get the idea? Okay. But notice that the serpent didn't try to tempt Adam and Eve with a steak. He didn't say, for instance, all this vegetation is fine. I'm sure you're enjoying it. But if you tried killing one of these animals and eating it, he just tempted them with one more fruit out of all this abundance. And I cannot even imagine what the fruit of all those trees tasted like, and you can't either. Do you know how much? How much change has taken place in produce just over the last hundred years? Stick with me on this. How many of you like banana-flavored candy? Like Laffy Taffy, uh, uh, that sort of thing? Okay. How many of you, whether you like it or don't like it, will say, that tastes nothing like a banana? Smells nothing like a banana. And yet, when you smell it, you know that's banana flavored, that's banana scented. But there's almost no, no connection. Do you know why that is? hundred years ago, less than that, uh, the, when bananas were becoming uh, uh, popular and they found ways to export them, uh, there was uh, the main variety, practically the only variety grown, was, was a variety called uh, the Gros Michel. Uh, it, was, it had a nice thick skin, so it was easy to ship. It didn't get bruised easily. It was delicious. And that's what it tasted like, those banana pellets, that banana candy. And then a disease, some sort of fungus or something, uh, some sort of blight, practically wiped out that entire species or variety of banana. And they had to start growing something else called the Cavendish banana, which is the banana we all know today. And I like the Cavendish banana. It's just different. And I would love to taste a Gros Michel banana someday to see just what, how, how like the candy it is. But we don't have the variety anymore. We have to stick with what can be shipped worldwide. Um, and this goes for uh, well, tomatoes. There are probably people, I know there are people who don't like tomatoes, but there are probably people who don't like tomatoes but have never tasted anything but a grocery store tomato. And to that person, I want to say, you've never tasted a tomato. It's not like it's like that, only better. It's not even like that and 10 times better. It is a completely different thing. Can I get an amen? All right? You've, if you've not tasted a vine-ripened heirloom tomato, you haven't had a tomato. Why, so, all right, so why don't they put the good tomatoes in grocery stores? Because they can't ship them. The tomatoes that you buy are chosen and grown by the millions and billions because they have chosen the kind that survives shipping coast to coast the best without breaking, without ripening too quickly. They pick them green, let them ripen on the way, and by the time they get in the grocery store, they're at least pink. They might turn a little red, but they taste nothing like the tomato God created, which is the ones that I grow in my garden. And they do this with everything. Uh, Mom was reading me an article years ago about how broccoli had, uh, there were 27 particular, there were probably more, but there were 27 different specific things in broccoli. Uh, and one of those 27 things are what made it appear 
green and a particular shade of green, and there were several, you know, a dozen or so that were vital nutrients in broccoli. Uh, but what they do is they breed broccoli to look good on the shelf. They don't, it, it's so much less nutritious than it's supposed to be, but they, they select it and they breed it and they, they, uh, they, you know, they, they, they do what they need to do to make it look good on the shelf. And one more example, when we were in Mexico, when some of you were in Mexico down the Yucatan Peninsula, they had pineapple fields and they had these little stops every few miles if you wanted to stop at every one, and we did for a while, I think, where they would just, they'd be slicing pineapple that they had just picked, completely ripe, still on the plant. They would pick it, cut it up, put it in little baggies with sometimes they'd put a little lime juice, sometimes sprinkle some little uh, salt and cayenne pepper or something in there. And it ruined me for pineapple any, any other way. I mean, I'll still eat it. I like pineapple. It's a super sweet, and I'll eat it out of a can. But again, it's almost like it's a completely different thing. They should just call it something else. Now, even if you've had the best, you find some pineapple in Mexico, you have a vine-ripened heirloom tomato, you are still eating the fruit of the ground that has been laboring under the curse of sin and death for thousands of years. Do you understand that? Imagine eating produce from a pristine earth, brand new planted trees, rivers that have just been created, planted by God himself. We have never tasted, I'm sure, anything close to that. Why am I saying all this? Because when Eve was tempted... The proper response should have been, why would I do that? Why would I eat the one fruit that I've been clearly commanded not to eat when I have such an abundance and such a variety already? Look at the stuff we have. We lack nothing. Right there, before we took a bite, there was sort of a lack of gratitude, lack of appreciation for all they had. What I mean by that is Eve's response barely included mention of all God had given them. She went straight to the legal issue. She did say it, you know, because the, the, the serpent tried to trip her up on what God said. Has God truly said you can't eat of every tree in here? She says, we can eat of every tree, just not this one. And we can't touch it. God said we can't eat it or touch it or we'll die. And then he switched tactics and said, okay, yeah, God said that, but he didn't mean it. That's a whole separate sermon. But, again, she's like, yeah, we can eat all this stuff. That was her mention of everything God had provided. We can, but we can't because he said not to or we'll die. So again, straight to the legal issue. Now, this is important. If God's word is clear, we must obey it regardless of whether it makes sense to us or not. If we don't understand it, if we don't understand the why, but the command is still clear, we have to obey. It might not make perfect sense to us in the moment, uh, but as long as the command is clear, we obey, and that is an expression of our faith. But the temptation gets a foothold when we focus on what makes sense that is in opposition to the revealed will of God that's in opposition to God's clear command. In the broadest sense, here's how it works. I know the Bible says, uh, God says, don't do this, whatever it is, such and such. But doing this makes me happy, and I know God wants me happy. 
So why should I not do this? I don't see anything wrong with it. It makes me feel good, so I'm going to do it. What really is the harm in cussing? Isn't it just sort of a prudish leftover from uh, older times to, to disapprove of cussing? It's just words. Language is language. It can mean what I want it to mean. God doesn't really need my money. So what really is the point of my giving and tithing, especially if I'm sacrificing something, especially if it works any hardship on me? God wants me happy. Sex outside the paradigm of one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. That's God's model. But if we go outside that, why really would God care as long as everyone involved is happy? We could go on. But it's vital that we do what God says before we understand everything about the why. As long as we know what God says. As we grow in grace and we grow in experience, we begin to understand things like uh, that to curse or pollute our vocabulary with what the Bible calls coarse speech or filthy speech is to abuse the power of the tongue or worse, diminish the power of the tongue. As well as being an example of not preferring our brothers and sisters, knowing that our speech is offensive to others. We learn that God doesn't require us to give because he needs our money, but because it's a concrete way of expressing our faith, our trust in him to be our constant supply, and because we are demonstrating his generosity to those people around us. We give because we are made in the image of the ultimate giver. We give because it opens up channels for God to give to us. We also learned that sex outside the parameters that God gave us is physically harmful. It's risky. It also soils the precious gift of intimacy as he designed it. It robs us of its richness, and it soils us in terms of our ability to enjoy it because it introduces resentment, jealousy, and regret. It also robs us of a beautiful illustration of God's unwavering commitment to us. So Eve stands on the fact that God said no when she resisted the first temptation. But when the serpent made his case, look, what could be wrong with eating it? It's just one more fruit to eat, and look at it. It's beautiful. You know it's going to be delicious, and it will depart God-like wisdom to you. What's the problem? Well, now God's command doesn't make much sense. So why not? After all, God has done nothing but good to us, so surely he won't allow us to die because of something like this, even though he said specifically that's what would happen. This is the one thing you can't do, and if you do it, you're going to die. Well, surely he wouldn't kill us over something like this. We better spend some time thinking about what God has said. You know, when his commandments make sense, they are easier to obey. Don't misunderstand me. <laughs> we obey anyway. But it's easier when we see the good sense behind the commandments. And that speaks again to the importance of knowing God's character. Everything God has spoken and, ha and done has been for my good. Even though I don't quite get this, I must believe that this too is for my good. Because there's a pattern. There's a history here. And there's a promise. 
Look, one chapter later, we see Cain and Abel. Remember those guys? In Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, we read, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain, uh, Cain was a tiller of the soil, Abel was, uh, he, he, he raised flocks of sheep. Uh, it says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now look, we've talked about this before and recognized that perhaps Cain should have what he should have done instead of bringing fruits and vegetables to the Lord was to bring fruits and vegetables to Abel, his brother, purchase a lamb so that he could bring a blood sacrifice before God. Uh, because you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Well, I agree with that. Uh, and God made that clear when he killed animals to make uh, clothes out of animal skins for Adam and Eve to make that point. But there's nothing in this passage that says this was a specific sin offering. And there were certainly, and there anyway was no law yet describing how exactly what they could offer and when. They were simply bringing the fruit of their increase. So I think it's, all I'm saying is it's, it's possible to make too big a deal out of that. The other thing is that Abel uh, clearly brought, yes, brought, of the firstborn, he brought the best, he brought the fat and Cain, it just says he brought some produce. doesn't say anything about the quantity, the quality. doesn't say whether it was the first produce that came up that year. He just brought something. And the big thing, though, is that God was pleased with Abel and his offering and displeased with Cain and his offering. It wasn't just the offering that displeased him. There was something about Cain, uh, his attitude, or the way he was bringing it that was not pleasing to God. Not just the offering, it was the offerer. Abel recognized that God was the author of life, including the life of the sheep he tended. Abel's offering uh, was a reflection of his gratitude for God's abundant supply. Cain, it seems, resented even having to bring an offering. Uh, I'm going to go into some risky territory here and quote a Simpsons episode from early in the series. Uh, and I remember it only because it appeared in a Christian magazine, the, the part I'm about to. I've, not that I've never seen it. I've seen The Simpsons, I confess to you. Okay, how many of you have seen The Simpsons? Shame on you. You need to go home to dinner. No, anyway, uh, in this early episode, they were sitting down to dinner, and Homer asks Bart to say the prayer. And Bart says, Dear God, we paid for everything, so thanks for nothing. There's Cain for you. I worked, I sweated, I grew this stuff, I harvested it, I'll bring it to you since I have to, but really, what am I thanking you for? Not nearly as bad as the story of the uh, farmer who had this beautiful field. He had crops, he had flowers, and uh, a minister was walking by and he said, that sure is a beautiful field, a beautiful uh, patch of, of ground there that you and the Lord have. And the farmer kind of rolled his eyes and said, well, you should have seen it when the Lord had it all to himself. I did all this. What am I thanking you for? Okay, Cain, how about for the seed? How about for the abundance that came out of that seed? For the very earth that germinated the seed and nourished the plants? For the sun and the water, the rivers that flow through here? and keep those plants healthy and growing. How about, Cain, you thank God for the air you breathe while you till the soil? All of which God created. 
Biblical thankfulness starts with a heart of gratitude, a recognition of all God's goodness, everything he has done, everything he's provided. Losing sight of that is the first step away from him and his blessings. It's the first step out of a healthy relationship with God. There's an account of uh, Dwight Moody. This is apparently, hopefully, in the early days of his ministry as a, a preacher of the word. And he was reading Psalm 103 and offering a kind of running commentary on it. And he read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Then he stopped and said, You can't remember them all, of course, but don't forget them all. Remember some of them. <laughs> Matthew Henry, the famous scholar and Bible commentator, was mugged by a group of thieves one night, and they took all of his money. They took his purse. I think purse, you know, it was his money bag, men carry. It was European. No, it was, uh, they, it was his money purse. And it says, uh, that night he wrote in his diary this, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took all I had, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. That's a godly perspective. Talk about finding something to be thankful about in dark times. And some people seem to be naturally thankful. I'm not going to go into the different psychology that might be behind that. Some of it is training, of course. We, we, are, we need to be trained. And, you know, little kids often have to be told, don't forget to say thank you. My predecessor at VCC, Brad Dawson, uh, over in Farmer City, often remarked that some people are better by nature than others are by grace. And we've known people like that. I think I told you uh, after our time with Keith and Heidi Hershey in Michigan several weeks ago what a kick we got out of Keith. You know, gratitude was just constantly bubbling up out of him. Uh, and you, you couldn't fake what he was doing. It was just so natural to him. Uh, every day, several times a day, he would just say, Oh, isn't God good? Isn't Jesus wonderful? If there's a lull in the conversation, he would just offer up a prayer right in the middle of it. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for being so good to us. Thanks for loving us, Lord. And then we'd continue with the con. And it wasn't like there was nothing uncomfortable about it. It's like, oh, gosh, I guess we can't talk about football. I guess we can't talk about fishing. We can talk about anything. But if then nobody's saying anything, he would just, oh, man, God, God's wonderful. Thank you, God. It's this praying without ceasing. Kind of looks like that, doesn't it? I'm moving slowly but surely to my point, my main point, and it's not a long one, so don't, don't take that to mean I haven't really started my sermon yet. But first, we do see examples of this in our lives. We notice, uh, we notice it about, at least we think we do, whole generations. We'll say, uh, kids these days, they don't know how good they've got it. They don't appreciate anything. And that's not fair. That's painting with way too broad a brush because there are children who appreciate all kinds of things. But we can make our case, right? If we're old enough, and I am, we can look back at the things our kids might consider hardships. Yet to us, they were just part of life. And we wonder why our kids aren't prostrating themselves daily in humble gratitude before the Lord for having things like more than one car in the driveway, for cell phones, for central air, for weed eaters, 
You know, I can remember when my dad, to, if he was going to trim around the sidewalk, he had to get down on his hands and knees with those little hand clippers. Anybody remember those things? But how thankful were we for window units, for fans, for that one car instead of a horse, for a telephone at all, even if it was stuck to the wall. We could go on and on and on. And you know, literature and the arts abound with examples of good men and women who gave back to society in recognition for blessings and of evil men and women who forgot them. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story Les Miserables. It's been made into several different movies, musicals, plays. I read the book one summer, longest novel I've ever read, but worth it. And it tells the story of Jean Valjean who spent his life often in the face of persecution and great adversity uh, to be a good man. But he was doing that all in response to one kindness that was shown to him by a priest early in the story. He lived a life of gratitude. I know there are people who are genuine victims they suffer unimaginable tragedy. And if they're Christians, they're still commanded to be thankful. And the fact is, most of us, especially most of us here today, life is more about how we respond. It's more about our attitude and what we choose to dwell on than it is about our circumstances and what happens to us. By and large, the vast majority of us have plenty to be thankful for. And sadly, from time to time, most of us are not as thankful for it as we should be. When you read, especially in the New Testament, the commands to be thankful, which are in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the commands to be thankful in the New Testament are given to men and women who are being persecuted for their faith. And Paul, who was often the one doing the reminding, recording these commands for the recipients of his epistles to be thankful, was writing from prison. And here we finally come to the main point. I'm going to look at a few passages of Scripture first, and none of them are very long, but let me read through them. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm not going to go down this road too far, at least today, but I will point out that it says, in everything, give thanks. You don't have to thank him for everything that's happening, but no matter what is happening, you can thank him in the middle of it. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 3, chapter, 12, uh, sorry, ch chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must 
also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read this out of the New American Standard Bible. It's a better translation, and, it's a, and that's important for this passage. Uh, Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our, Lord is, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me read that same passage from the message. Do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? Not only thankful, but brimming with worship, deeply reverent before God. For God is not an indifferent bystander. He's actively cleaning house, torching all that needs to burn, and he won't quit till it's all cleansed. God himself is fire. Believe me, believe me, there are plenty more scriptures where those came from, urging us to be thankful, to give thanks, and there is a difference between being thankful and giving thanks, and that difference is what we're talking about next week, so be here. But I want to switch back to apologetics mode here for a second. This is why I brought in, brought, uh, read all those scriptures about being thankful Unless you are a sociopath or a born ingrate, all of us have experienced the feeling of being grateful. We all know what it's like to have gratitude. And there's a difference between being happy and being grateful. There's a difference between being satisfied and being thankful. There's a difference between being fulfilled or relieved and being thankful. Now, gratitude, thankfulness, uh, those are synonyms. But happy doesn't always mean thankful. Relieved doesn't always mean thankful. We have different words for different things, but some people try to explain a difference. Let me tell you where I'm going with this. I guess what I'm saying is sometimes the only way to describe what we are experiencing, what we are feeling in a moment uh, in, in response to a circumstance or just looking around, the only way to properly describe it is to say that we are grateful or thankful. Uh, probably shared this story before, but uh, Parkland, around 1984, I was uh, a student there and around Thanksgiving, I went around with a little clipboard asking random students, around Thanksgiving time, I was asking what they were thankful for. And I think a lot of them thought I was probably writing an article for the college newspaper uh, or maybe doing research for a, for a paper that I was writing. I was doing neither of those things, but I didn't do anything on purpose to disabuse them of that notion because I wanted them to feel free to talk. And, but... I asked them simply, what are you thankful for? And I can't remember anybody saying, oh, I'm thankful for money and possessions and, you know, all the worldly stuff. Most people said, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for opportunities. I'm thankful for freedom. Uh, but that wasn't the point. 
I wasn't really after what they were thankful for. I just wanted them to acknowledge that they were thankful. Because my follow-up question was this, who are you thankful to? This caught some people off guard. Some, of course, you know, there were plenty of Christians out there, and some said, well, I'm, I'm thankful to God. But depending on what they were thankful for, some found that a hard question to answer because this is my contention. This is the apologetics angle. We can be generally happy. We can experience satisfaction and relief. We can experience a number of emotions, various states of mind, but gratitude requires an object. It really doesn't make sense to say, well, I just feel gratitude. No, that means you feel gratitude to somebody. For somebody. Otherwise, just use a different word. Some people tried to wriggle out of that one. They would say, well, I'm not thankful to anyone or anything in particular. I'm just generally thankful. doesn't work. And it doesn't really work either if you change your answer. You can't say, well, then I guess I'm not thankful. I'm just happy. No. No. Then just... That's different. We've kind of established that. There's a difference between feeling generally happy or relieved or satisfied and feeling thankful. Sometimes thankfulness, again, is the only way to properly label or describe an experience. What do you feel when you survive an accident? What do you feel like when you narrowly avoid an accident? When that medical test comes back and it's negative? Are you happy or are you thankful? When you recover from a disease, is it mere relief or is it gratitude? When you get that bonus check at work, when you plan an outdoor event two weeks in the future and that day gets here and the weather is beautiful, are you thankful? When you forget to fill the tank and you manage to just coast into the gas station, we could go on and on. And sometimes we can. We can identify a, an object of our gratitude. Thanks, boss. Thanks, doc. Thanks, mom. But what about the things that we have all the time? Life, breath, intelligence to whatever degree, food, clothing, shelter, relationships. Look at all the things that surround you every day and count your blessings. Name them one by one. I, I saw an atheist post the other day on Facebook uh, he'd posted a picture of a church sign that said something about have a grateful heart. And he says, I've been doing this. I've been culti cultivating a grateful heart. And the, and the uh, circuitry, my, my gratitude circuitry has improved my life and my relationships. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, gratitude to whom? And I think that is built into us. It goes back to one of those passages in Romans we just read, that how God has revealed himself to us. It says he's made it known to us, and he's revealed himself to us by the things that are made. There is still this seed of knowledge of the creator in us, even in our fallen state, that responds to our surroundings with gratitude to good surroundings with gratitude. We look around, oh, I'm so thankful that I am alive in this day and age. I'm so thankful for this day. And we should be. But we as believers, there's no excuse not to be, to thank him for this day that he has made, for life, for breath, for strength, for energy, for everything that we need, all the goodness, finding genuine goodness, something to be genuinely thankful about every single day. 
all the things that the world has to be thankful for, we of all people need to be thankful for. I'm talking about the everyday stuff. But again, as believers, as Christians, you and I have much, much more to be thankful for. Like what? Pardon for sin. And a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today. And bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine. With 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Praise and worship team, you could be making your way up here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. I get a kick out of what Moody said, just don't forget them all. But the psalmist, in this case, starts enumerating them. And the first thing he says, hang on a second, questions will be later. Forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your sins. If God had offered nothing more than that, he would still be worth my faith and my devotion. The number one thing we have to be thankful for is God himself. God is not a created being. He is uncaused. We thank God for being God, for being good, for being the kind of God he is, for making himself known to us. I saw that. I saw a quote. And I, didn't, I didn't write it down so I don't have the attribution, but it was a prayer. It was a prayer that thank God for this, thank God for this, and finally, thank God for God. <laughs> He created us. He created us to be with him. He created us to enjoy him. There's that beautiful scene in the garden. You know, it says that God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's like, wow, what a way to live in that garden planted by God with every good thing and God just hangs out with you in physical manifestation. Sin messed that up royally. But God worked right in the middle of sinful humanity to rescue us from that. Jesus, the Son of God, made flesh, was given to us. He took on our humanity with all of its struggles and to take on all of our sin. Sin itself so that God's justice could be carried out. God's integrity when it comes to judging sin is intact because he did not ignore sin. He judged it, he condemned it, and he punished it. But all that judgment and punishment fell on Christ at the cross. He was made sin so we could be righteous. He was afflicted so we could be healed. He became poor that we might be made rich. He died so that we may live. Psalm 107, verse 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed 
from the hand of the enemy. Stand up with me. Redemption. There's something to be thankful for. And have you been redeemed? Has everyone been redeemed? Kind of. What I mean is, is to say that Jesus has done all that is necessary to secure re your redemption, your salvation, your reconciliation with God. But you must accept it on his terms. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But we have to decide to accept them, to accept him. Not merely as a friend, not as an example, or even just as an advisor, but as Lord. You know, I've been thinking lately uh, about the prodigal son, and most of you know why I've been thinking about that lately. The son had everything he needed in the father's house, but he chose to leave. He asked for his inheritance early and went out to live his life the way he wanted, with riotous living, prodigal living, until he ran out of resources, and when he ran out of resources, he ran out of friends, and his life was miserable. And it says when he came to himself, he realized how good he had it at his father's house. It was a much, much better place than anything the world had to offer. So he returned, and the father welcomed him back extravagantly. But we have to understand that he knew when he went back to his father's house, he was going to still have to live in his father's house on his father's terms. It's just suddenly those terms looked awfully good compared to everything the world had to offer. Don't waste any more time seeking happiness in the world. It will always ultimately let you down. And if you've wandered off, today's the day to come back. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ and experienced that redemption for the first time, today is your day. If you prayed that prayer long ago, or not so long ago, but you've wandered out of the Father's house to seek satisfaction elsewhere, please recognize that there's no place better. Nobody has your best interest in mind more than God does. I'm going to pray. Just a simple, and it's a simple invitation. When I'm done praying and you want to give your heart to Jesus Christ, you want to experience that redemption, you want to come back to him. I would love to pray with you personally, and I invite you to come up while we sing this closing song and just let me lead you in a short prayer. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.